I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotel's family of 22 brands has over 7,400 locations and the perfect hotel for any traveler you want to be. Like a Cambria Hotel serving up locally inspired craft cocktails for all my folks who maybe want to meet up and talk about Mad Royals. Check into a Radisson Hotel with flexible workspaces for you strivers who listen during business travel. Or a Comfort Hotel with free hot breakfast, family-friendly pools, and big spacious rooms for the parents who listen with their kids and need a little retreat. What are you waiting for? Join Choice Privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And not just the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go papertarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. So insurance is part of daily life for most people. Uh, you use it to help you manage financial loss, at least theoretically. You pay an insurance company for a policy if something bad happens. That policy pays you out again all of this, theoretically and ideally. (laughs) One can hope that the policy will pay out. Right. The insurance company, in broad terms, makes money by pooling that money of its policyholders that it collects and creates an investment portfolio, and then they use that to, to make money. Both sides of this arrangement are trying to manage their risk throughout. Which brings us to actuarial science, which is, of course, all about calculating risk. Risk of injury, illness, death, risk of market shifts and financial outcomes. And I find actuary science fascinating, although sometimes slightly depressing, because it kind of takes all of the rich tapestry of life and boils it down to numbers and tables and formulas. Um, But our reality is so deeply shaped by these things. So it got me thinking recently, where did these practices start? Because it's the beginning of the year. A lot of people's insurance, if you're like covered by group insurance with your work, sometimes those change at the beginning of the year or your policy just changes, even if it's like with the same company. And I just have been thinking lately about, it sounds so simple, uh, like, wow, who does all the math on this? (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) But somebody has to do all the math on that. Um, So we're talking about actuary science and insurance and where these things kind of got their start in the sense that we know them today. And just as a level set, we're doing a two-parter, but it's still just grazing the surface of all of this. Uh, If you start looking for information on actuarial science history or insurance history, uh, you will realize there are about two kajillion papers written every year about it. That's that's the real number I just made up, two kajillion. Um, So we're trying to, like, just kind of touch on 
an idea of how we got to the point that we're at today, and we'll talk about some of the more interesting jumps forward, as well as some stumbling blocks to this whole thing that is so much of a part of our lives. And before we even get started, we have a brief note about vocabulary, because the words assurance, A-S-S-U-R-A-N-C-E, and insurance, I-N-S-U-R-A-N-C-E, both come up in this episode. A lot of times these are used interchangeably. I Like, people use the word insurance for both of these a lot of the time, but yeah, there are differences. The yeah, there are differences between these two. Primarily, assurance deals with something that is definitely going to happen, like death. Uh, we're all eventually going to face that moment. Except Nandor. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Insurance, on the other hand, deals with things that might happen, like a car crash or flood damage. So insurance also covers a term, and that's why you have to renew your policy, say, once a year or every six months or at some other interval. The generalized usage of these words has made this distinction really fuzzy, like in the case of whole life insurance, because whole life insurance includes a cash savings element that the policyholder can use before their death. It is called insurance, even though there is also a payout portion of the policy that happens when the inevitable end of the policyholder's life arrives. So that might be considered assurance with an A if the policy weren't set at a specific term. And in casual conversation today, most people would probably use the word insurance, as I said, even when talking about things that are technically assurance. So we wanted to just level set a little bit because most of the policies and organizations that we're talking about today are really focused on what we would probably call life insurance. But in the historical record, they are called assurance with an A. Yes, and some of that is, uh, we'll talk about assurance societies and how those are a little bit different. Uh, But London is generally recognized as the place where life insurance was born, and from there it spread throughout the globe via trade. But even before there was insurance or actuary tables, there were bills of mortality. And these were weekly reports issued by parish clerks in London that listed the numbers of deaths in a given parish and their causes. And this practice began in the 16th century as a way to track disease. In 1665, John Bell, clerk to the Company of Parish Clerks, compiled a book titled London's Remembrancer, or A True Account of Every Particular Week's Christenings and Mortality in All the Years of Pestilence Within the Cognizance of the Bills of Mortality, being 18 years, taken out of the register of the Company of Parish Clerks of London and together with several observations on the said years and some of their precedent and subsequent years, published for general satisfaction and for prevention of false papers. And in this, he wrote about the bills of mortality, quote, the bill of mortality is of very great use and necessity and therefore not to be slighted since it so much conduceth to the health of the city and preservation of the members thereof in that it giveth the general notice of the plague and a particular account of the places which are therewith infected to the end such places may be shunned and avoided. So the years of the publications of these, they were not unbroken, but they were issued into the mid-19th century by some of the parishes. But though these were counts, they didn't really 
analyze the information in any kind of way, and things like ages and sex weren't usually included. Additionally, they came under a lot of criticism due to how they were collected and how the data was collected. This job normally fell to elderly ladies who were willing to help out the parish clerks. And while Bell defended this practice due to the fact that the women were selected by men of good judgment... There's some layers of <laughs> bias here, but uh, this does mean that there just there wasn't really a strict methodology in place for how this data was gathered, so the numbers cannot be counted on to be accurate. Yeah, it's kind of like if someone told Tracy and I both, like, hey, go through your neighborhood and get a count of how many people died this year. The odds are really good we would approach that a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. And so even though you may have these like two numbers or even numbers with notations that you combine, they don't necessarily refer to the same things. So it's a little bit tricky. You could have a whole group of competent, detail-oriented people not doing the thing the same way. Right. And one of the earliest steps in the development of actuarial science is from what to me was a somewhat surprising source. It's a man more associated with astronomy, and that is Sir Edmund Halley. Halley has come up on the show before, so we're not going to rehash all of his details, but in brief, he was born on November 8th, 1656, and he was still a child when Charles II granted the charter that established the Royal Society. So he grew up in kind of an interesting time scientifically. He attended Queen's College, and he was encouraged into astronomy through astronomer royal John Flamsteed. Halley published his star catalog in 1678 and was elected into the Royal Society that same year. He famously identified the cycle of a comet that would eventually bear his name. Within the society, he became close friends with Robert Hooke and Christopher Wren, and he also began his association with Isaac Newton. He later edited Principia for Newton. Uh, The work, though, that makes him germane to today's topic is his Population Table, which was published in 1693. This table was made using data from the city of Breslau, Germany. Today, that's in Poland, in the city now known as Wroclaw, and it's a little more than 350 kilometers or 220 miles west of Warsaw. This table is sometimes called a life table. It's sometimes called a death table. I feel like modern scientists and researchers have all agreed that it really should just be called a population table. Um, It gathered together the simple information based on parish records of how many people were alive at each age. Halley gives specific numbers of people for ages 1 to 84, and then for people 85 to 100 years old, he kind of lumps them in as one group in a summary column, and that groups all of the population of the city by seven. So you'll have the group that is ages 1 to 7, 8 to 14, 15 to 21, etc., And this basic table shows exactly what you would think. As the number related to age advances, the number of people surviving at that age goes down. So while the Breslau record shows 1,000 infants under the age of one, it shows a total of 107 people living that year between the ages of 85 and 100 altogether. And the total sample set, the population, was 34,000. So if you're wondering why a London-based mathematician and astronomer was using data from a German city, uh, it's because they were a lot more meticulous with the record-keeping than most other European cities were. 
Additionally, this was a place with low rates of immigration and emigration, so it was a good model of population over time for this one particular group. Part of that degree of isolation came from the fact that Breslau had a primarily Lutheran population at a time when it was under the rule of the Habsburg monarchy, which was Catholic. So it makes sense that the community there just, it kept mostly to itself. We're going to pause here for a quick sponsor break. And when we're back, we'll talk about the ways that Hallie thought that his table could be used. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands in over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian, someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet, and also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day, seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if everyone's being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash Papertarian. 
So Hallie's table, as we described it, may sound pretty basic, but Hallie used this data to make some important determinations. For one, he noticed that the numbers of births and deaths were pretty comparable in each year that he looked at, which ranged from 1687 to 1691. He also showed various ways that such a table could be useful. In the paper that he wrote to accompany it in the Royal Society's publication, Philosophical Transactions, he noted that if you subdivide the population information by gender, you can assess how many men might be available to fight in military conflicts, taking into account their age. Although, he just divided by two to estimate the number of men versus women. Again, this sounds pretty simplistic, and it is, but a paper on Halley's Tables by James E. Siecka, which I hope I'm pronouncing correctly, published in the Journal of Legal Economics in 2008, noted that Halley came up with the number of 0.26 as the proportion of the Breslau population that could potentially serve in the military, and that if you use that same calculation with the population of the U.S. when that 2008 paper was written, the number doesn't come out all that different. It's 0.24. Because Halley was mathematically establishing some pretty basic truths about the makeup of human population groups, his table has remained relevant in some uses into the 21st century. Halley also calculated survival odds at various ages of life, as well as chances of survival past certain ages. And then he makes the important note that he suggests that life insurance could be regulated based on these statistics. In 1944, statistician Erwin Farron called Halley's table, quote, the first real step in the art of life measurement. There had been another simpler table recorded before Halley's. This was compiled by statistician John Grant in 1606. Writing about Grant's table in 1938, statistician and epidemiologist Major Greenwood summarized its existence and lack of detail in the Royal Society Journal of the History of Science as follows, quote, In the first edition of Grant's famous natural and political observations mentioned in a following index and made upon the bills of mortality, Grant included a short table purporting to give the survivors of 100 quick conceptions at the end of 6, 16, 26, 36, 46, 56, 66, 76, and 86 years. The bills of mortality in Grant's time did not record the ages at death, and he reached the second industry at in his table, that is, 64 survivors at the age of 6, by a rough classification of the named causes of death into those which wholly affected children, thrush, convulsion, rickets, etc., and those which he thought about half, smallpox, swinepox, etc., affected children below the age of six. The remaining figures are conjectural. Some statisticians hold that Grant had discovered the principle that under certain conditions, a survivorship table could be computed from a summation of deaths in age groups. Others believe that the table is a mere guess and not even grants, but a contribution to his book from his friend William Petty. There is no doubt that as an instrument of computation, the table is of little value. So, while Grant was onto the idea of measuring mortality, he wasn't really rigorous enough about the data to create something that had the kind of longevity that Halley's table did. Halley's table has been studied and analyzed and written about for centuries, including reconstruction of the methods that researchers believe he used to compile it. 
it never seems to stop fascinating statisticians, in part because Halley manipulated some of the numbers in ways that were intended to smooth out the data for easier consumption by non-mathematicians and also just make it all work a little better. So this included things like rounding numbers. Since he was using an average of data collected from a five-year period, there would be times where the average would come out to include decimals. And you can't have 0.5 of a person, so Halley rounded out. In 2010, David R. Bellhouse noted in his paper, A New Look at Halley's Life Table, that this need to round may explain why Halley grouped people in seven-year increments, because the numbers just worked out best that way. But those roundings and the logic of the groupings isn't included in Halley's writings. He hasn't really notated why he did things or when he did them. So the granularity of the data is lost unless someone goes back to the letters from Breslau, which included the population data, which some people have done. (laughs) Now, life insurance was already in play well before Halley made this table. In 1884, Cornelius Walford, who was an actuary and historian of the field, wrote a paper on the history of life assurance in the UK. And that paper's opening summarizes the evolution of the field to the time of his writing, and it lays out the phases that assurance had been through in its development. Quote, Life assurance is the compound growth first of our commercial necessities, aided largely by a love of speculation, and later of our progressive civilization. For the former, rough and ready means of estimation were resorted to. For the latter, a long and elaborate course of progressive investigation was needed. The development of the business has extended over some three or four centuries, perhaps more. It has passed through three distinct phases. One, the experimental period. Two, the speculative or transitional period. Three, the period of scientific exactitude. These periods, of course, more or less overlap each other, but they each possess very marked distinctions. So there is a little bit of speculation about types of insurance or assurance that could or could not be considered life insurance going all the way back to ancient Greece and Babylon, although such things are mentioned in writing. Ever since money entered into the human timeline, people have sought ways to deal with the problem of that money running out, specifically when a family breadwinner passed. This issue was sometimes addressed as a public responsibility through things like charitable funds that were intended to be dispersed to the bereft, right? So think things like widows' funds or even poorhouses or orphans' funds. But those were obviously less than ideal and often stigmatized. But people who provided for their families eventually started to want to take a more proactive approach to ensuring that their responsibilities were taken care of even after they had gone. And for those with the means to accrue savings, they could easily just leave that to their loved ones. But for people who didn't have a lot of extra money or had some, but not what they felt like was enough, that wasn't really feasible. So various deals have been made throughout history to try to set up some sort of safety net. So we're talking primarily about life insurance today. But of course, in a lot of cases, insurance was not about people's lives, but the loss of goods. These arrangements originated primarily in maritime scenarios where the risk of losing cargo was high. There are references to arrangements that might be considered maritime insurance, going all the way back to Babylon's Code of Hammurabi. The oldest insurance policy on goods that we know of was made in 1350 and was financed by a man named Leonardo Cataneo to cover a shipment of wheat that was traveling from Tunis to Sicily. 
Cataneo would pay out if the goods were lost at sea, but that if they made it to port as planned, he would be repaid the value with interest. So he was basically getting paid to assume the risk of losing money. And that arrangement was, like a lot at the time, made between individuals. There weren't any assurance societies or insurance companies yet. There have also been insurance arrangements that were made to cover the loss of enslaved people by their enslavers, although those arrangements were more about recovering the value of humans who were perceived as property rather than lives, so they aren't generally classified as life insurance. Marine insurance on cargo was pretty common by the 1500s, but life insurance is a little harder to establish because there are just a lot more variables. So the Walford paper that we mentioned a moment ago makes the case that the experimental phase of life assurance, which we don't really have a lot of primary sources for, would have tied into the marine industries just as insurance on cargo had. Mariners, Walford explains, would make assurance deals, quote, against death or captivity during the prosecution of their voyage, in insuring merchants against captivity by pirates, for in early times merchants accompanied their maritime ventures. The mode of undertaking these risks was by individual underwriters taking certain defined portions thereof at so much percent premium. There were also types of insurance that benefited not a person's next of kin should they die at sea, but their creditors. Sometimes those were taken out by the creditor. On the flip side of that, sometimes travelers lent money that they would not need on their travels to people at their point of origin, and that money would be collected with interest when they returned. But then if they didn't return, those loans became sort of a payout. The first life insurance policy that's normally cited as such was a term life insurance policy taken out to cover the life of William Gibbons on June 18, 1583. So he paid a small sum, reportedly 30 pounds, on a policy that would pay 400 pounds if he died within 12 months of issue. Gibbons's age at the time the policy was issued is not known, but he died on May 29, 1584. The underwriters, who were a group of businessmen who thought they would win what was essentially a bet, tried to argue that a month is 28 days, and then using that calculation, Gibbons had lived for 12 months. Uh, that argument did not fly in court, and the group was ordered to pay. The business community got a little trepidatious about life insurance for a bit after this. Yeah, there were still deals being made, but it had this gone the way that, that those underwriters wanted, there probably would have been a bigger explosion in life insurance uh, earlier on. The first line of that policy contract on William Gibbons had read, Richard Martin, citizen and alderman of London, doth make assurance and causeth himself to be assured upon the natural life of William Gibbons, citizen and salter of London, for and during the space of 12 months, next ensuing after the underwriting hereof, by the assurers hereafter subscribed fully to be complete and ended. If you're wondering where the idea came from for a one-year term for the policy on William Gibbons, it was from the rules set forth by the Office of Assurances at the Royal Exchange in London. That office was established in 1575 as a place where people could engage in what were called public assurances, meaning that the agreements were made there on the premises and paperwork was filed so that if there were any arguments about how the business went, it could be legally contested. 
and the office's regulations stated that you could only insure a person's life for one year at a time. And part of the reasoning was that up to that point, mutual contribution societies, which anyone could pay into and have some sort of payout to their next of kin when they died, were operating in a really precarious manner, where all members, no matter how old or young, were being admitted under the same agreement. So if a lot of elderly people joined one year, it meant that there was a greater likelihood that the funds would significantly be depleted in the following years, and there was not a guarantee that members who joined when they were younger would benefit from their longer membership. This was part of what is considered the speculative or transitional period of insurance. There just wasn't enough scientific data to really assess the situation and make value judgments on the way that benefits were being managed. That one-year limit meant that one or both parties could reconsider the agreement and its value and risks regularly, even though they didn't really have the math in place yet. In just a moment, we will talk about the way literal dice rolls played into all of this, but first we will pause for a sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs, and if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode, hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands in over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian, someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day, seriously. 
It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if everyone's being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash Papertarian. Several things happened in the gap between the Gibbons policy and the Halley table that started to form a more coherent picture of how insurance could actually work as a business that was a little less like a gamble. For one thing, public sanitation improved, which in turn improved health and life expectancy. The bills of mortality started to be seen as a data point for predictability models, although there still weren't any formulas in use to really plug that data into. It was more like just pattern recognition. Definitely more of a vibes and forecasting situation at this point. But then a big step forward came once again from a surprising source. A number of mathematicians interested not in life insurance but in games started to develop the laws of probability as men like Blaise Pascal and Pierre de Fermat and many others started to consider ways to predict the likelihoods of outcomes in dice rolls, they were also advancing the mathematics that the data points held in documents like the bills of mortality could be used in. This is the start of the phase that Walford called the period of scientific exactitude. Just two years before Halley's table was published, an early instance of insurance fraud was tried in the London Court of Chancery. And in that case, a man named Thornborough had taken out a year-long policy on a man named Edward Harwell. And Thornborough's insurance broker had collected subscriptions to underwrite that policy with a testimonial from one of Edward Harwell's neighbors that he was in good health. Harwell died not long after the policy was issued, and the court found that Thornborough had taken out the policy on a man he knew was in poor health and that he had no real connection to Harwell and that he had duped the subscribers into giving up their money. And it was found to have not been the first time that Thornborough had mounted such a scheme. Remember this story. We'll reference it briefly in part two. (laughs) In a way, more than a hundred years after the death of Gibbons and the subsequent payout, Halley was offering the business community a way forward that would give them a better method to determine the risks and potential benefits of issuing a policy. And he was working at a time when insurance law, while it had been around for more than a century in England, was still in its infancy. For example, several years after Halley's table came out, there was a lawsuit that established very specific rules regarding wording in insurance contracts and what they meant. In this case, the playwright Sir Robert Howard had died on September 3, 1698, at 1 a.m. The time is important to the case. You have probably seen a portrait of Sir Robert Howard. Flemish painter Anthony Van Dyke made a a well-known portrait of him. Howard had taken out an insurance policy on September 3rd, 1697, exactly one year before his death, and that policy had a term of one year. 
The underwriters claimed that the policy had expired when Howard died, making the case that after midnight on the evening of September 2nd, the contract was done. So a 1 a.m. September the 3rd death was not covered in the 100-pound policy. This led to a pretty fascinating judgment by the court. The phrase, quote, from the day of the date in the contract, it ruled, meant that though it was signed on September 3rd, it didn't go into effect until midnight, starting coverage on September 4th. If the policy had used the language from the date, it would, according to the court, have meant that the coverage began on the day the contract was signed, and that would have ended at midnight on September 2nd. Additionally, the establishment of timing specifics included a note from the court that days could not be argued fractionally, so the time of the day that he died did not matter. Halley's table was in regular use less than a decade after he prepared it. The Society of Assurance for Widows and Orphans was formed in 1699. The idea was that its members, of which there could be 2,000 at most, would each pay five shillings whenever a member died and that would mean that the bereft would receive 500 pounds if everyone paid their portion. In the interest of transparency, the society kept its books publicly. There was one register for the list of members and one that included a list of their family members who would receive benefits. Claims were paid out after they were approved by a group of 13 trustees who were members who were elected to that committee on a yearly basis. When someone died, the society had to be notified immediately so that one of its members could view the body and confirm the death. Membership was contingent on certification of the subscriber's age and that he had an affidavit from a qualified person that he had, quote, not known, not any known distemper upon him, and that he was in a very good state of health. A person could be denied membership if the trustees thought they looked sickly or elderly, Over time, additional limitations were placed on membership, including age limits. Both Halley's Table and the Bills of Mortality were used as the foundation of the Society of Assurance's workability. The potential mortality rate and potential expense for members was explained in their documentation this way, quote, the probable charge of the society may be thus calculated. The number of people within the limits of the Bills of Mortality are supposed by some to be two millions, by others one and a half million, by all to be at least a million. Out of these, there die about 20,000 a year, as appears by the general bill of mortality, etc., which is 1 in 50, supposing the number of people to be 1 million. Now, if but 1 in 50 dies out of the whole number, including women and children, sickly and infirm people, and such as are ancient and decrepit, we may reasonably calculate that not above 1 in 50 shall die in our society, which is to consist of such persons as are in health and of the different ages above mentioned. And this is but 40 in 2,000, so that the probable charge, when tis full, will be but 10 pounds per annum. And while tis increasing in proportion to what it has hitherto done, the advantage must be very great. So that's it. Everybody gets life assurance. (laughs) Uh, Of course, not, not really. At this point, the idea of a payment to a person's bereaved dependents was still in a pretty early phase, but... That's where we're going to end things for today. On Wednesday, we'll talk about another assurance society and the person who's considered the first actuary and whether or not insurance is a form of gambling. Which is a pretty fun discussion to have. (laughs) 
Um, I have a really fun listener mail. Okay. This is from our listener, Erica, and it's titled Rue for the Freezer. So, you know, I love it. Um, (laughs) I have to pull up a little thing on my phone because I made ready for this. Um, Erica writes, hi there. In an episode from like the summer or something, Holly mentioned a cookbook had a recipe for a large batch of roux that you kept in the freezer and scooped out as needed, and it came out perfectly every time. I cannot find the episode, so I could see if the recipe made it to any show notes. Can you direct me to the instructions? Thank you, Erica. Oh, Erica, I'm here for you because Mm -hmm. one... I love to talk about food. Two, this lets me talk about one of my favorite show topics of all time, Vincent Price. Yay! (laughs) Because it was his cookbook that he wrote with his wife, Mary, called The Treasury of Great Recipes, which is a really, really lovely cookbook uh, because it's all of the recipes that they collected from their favorite restaurants and chefs and they put together. But they also have a lot of their good cooking tips. And of course, this is a tip I keep on my phone, so I have it ready for you. (laughs) Um, It's a very short entry from the book, so I'm going to read it. Uh, It is Roux. For the Roux, we let one half cup butter soften at room temperature, then mix this to a smooth paste with one cup flour. The butter absorbs the flour, and we end up with one and a third cups Roux. This we freeze in a small pot or bowl covered with aluminum foil. When a recipe specifies to stir in one tablespoon flour mixed to a smooth paste with one tablespoon butter, we simply stir in one rounded tablespoon of our frozen Roux. Set. Perfect. Yeah, that's Perfect. great. I. I will add, this is an, also on the subject of freezing things. Yeah. Someone whose name I sadly did not write down said on our social media that a lot of gazpacho recipes freeze well. Oh. Following my d- discussion of how delighted I was that there was gazpacho in the freezer section in Barcelona grocery stores. Uh, so... Again, it is wintertime. This is not the season for cold soup for me, but this summer I am definitely going to try freezing some gazpacho. Yummo. Um, that all sounds great. Yeah, uh, that that's how you can put your roux in the freezer. I would recommend, for me, not foil, but an airtight container. Yeah, that would. that's what I would do. I too. usually put mine in a Pyrex with a lid. And I yeah. will say this, everybody's mileage is going to be different. Um... I get some inflammation from wheat gluten, so I started using coconut flour in mine. That mm. is the most velvety roux I've ever made. Really? <laughs> um, but it does have a little bit of a different flavor profile, so sure. keep that in mind. But, like, for me, that is the one. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, yeah, and you can, like I said, that's one tiny, tiny piece of a book that is full of beautiful recipes and really lovely writing and a lot of good cooking tips, so... Uh, like I said, any anything that can prompt me to talk about Vincent Price, I'm going to take it. <laughs> so thank you. Uh, if you would like to write to us with questions about Vincent Price or cooking that we may or may not have an answer to or anything, you can do that at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. We're also on social media as Missed in History, and you can find us uh, for subscription in the iHeartRadio app or anywhere you listen to your favorite shows. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. 
Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.